Welcome to Pocket Politics. This is a series of podcasts brought to you by the University of Sheffield Politics Society. These podcasts feature members of staff from the Politics Department, talking about topics from global politics to the mental health of MPs. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, welcome back to Pocket Politics from Polsock at the University of Sheffield. This week we are talking all about the Yemen crisis in our last episode before summer. As always, any of the opinions expressed, any of the views that we speak about in the podcast don't reflect the views of the podcast, Polsock or the Uni of Sheffield Students' Union as a whole. They are just our own. This is the last episode before summer so we really hope you enjoy it and we'll see you all again in September. Hello and welcome back to Pocket Politics from Polsock at the Uni of Sheffield. This week we are talking all about the Yemen crisis, what's actually going on, what we've heard in the media. I'm here with Leo and Harry. Say hi Leo and Harry. Hi. And we are going to be having a chat all about our experiences of kind of hearing about the Yemen crisis. But I thought that I'd start with just going over a few facts, talk about what's actually happened. Uh, So it all started, our story starts in 2011, when uh, President Saleh agreed to hand over power to his deputy, the now President Hadi. Uh, After that, there were four years of sort of anti-government protests, lots of them backed and sort of exploited by Houthi rebels who were looking to get Salah back in power. Uh, In 2015, other states kind of started to join the regional conflict, states like Qatar, Jordan, Bahrain. And since then, we've had cholera outbreaks. We've had the death of hundreds of political leaders, it seems, not to mention the whole, uh, you know, global pandemic thing. We're now left in what's been described in most media as the world's most extensive humanitarian crisis. Reports say that 24 million people have been affected, some 80% of the population, and 12 million of those are children. But, and it seems to me, I I don't know about you chaps, but it seems to me that we have heard next to nothing about this in mainstream media, television, newspapers. Social media, slightly different story, but I'm sure we're going to get onto that in today's episode, uh, because I'd like to start by asking you chaps, what kind of what's your experience of hearing about Yemen of, you know, being someone relatively politically active um, and kind of how you've experienced the Yemen crisis? Uh, Harry, let's start with you. Yeah, so I would agree that for the most part, the media haven't really covered the crisis. um, And the amount that I have heard has been for instance, in 2017, 2019, when the humanitarian crisis in Yemen re- like really started hotting up and really started getting serious, I saw people, I guess you could call them foreign policy experts, explaining that this is a strategically necessary conflict to stop Iran and uh, to control the region for British interests. Uh, linking into that, the issues about Britain's secret involvement in the war, uh, in the crisis, should I say, uh, how it's been Britain who've been refueling Saudi planes and e- even allegedly British pilots even flying planes that have been bombing Yemen. So th- those are the two aspects I've really heard a lot about. And people Have you? Heard... You've heard a lot about those? Because I, I, I haven't heard anything. I heard a bit. I admit, I read, I don't, I don't know whether you guys have heard of 
this new uh, this outlet uh, it's called foreign affairs magazine so i i read that quite a bit that they've cut that outlet in particular it's not particularly mainstream you could argue but it does cover it does talk about the yemen crisis quite frequently and i've heard so they've covered that from a foreign policy point of view but not nobody's really been covering apart from the guard newspaper no one's really been looking at the british involvement in the conflict which has been really mm. frustrating because britain and america but in particular britain have been heavily involved in the crisis and nobody seems to have noticed which is disappointing um to say the least because of the scale of the crisis it just doesn't seem unfortunately to the humanitarian aspect doesn't unfortunately seem to be getting the attention it deserves and yeah especially given the number of people that it affects that's what really yeah. i find absolutely staggering and is it, the, it, yeah go and on it, go ahead. And, and when it does get the attention it's kind of played in it's i guess in regards to goofy rebels is that how you pronounce it, i believe how fingers crossed because that's what i've gone with there's been accusations from certain sectors that they are the houthi rebels are terrorists and they're backed by iran what i've seen has been that's been used to distract from humanitarian crisis into in a sense sections of the media that have covered it have using that to justify putin's involvement in in the conflict and in the crisis which i find to be very disappointing okay that's interesting um i'm gonna get to leo but harry i'd like to put your brains on that one just because i'm really interested to see how how and why i think that i think you make a really interesting point about kind of british media trying to justify british involvement in the conflict but mm. why why do you think that is ever since 9 11 there's been this feeling that we need to get involved in the middle east a lot of the british media feel that britain needs to be involved in the middle east militarily i'm not talking about just humanitarian aid, because I think most people would agree that humanitarian aid we need to be involved in, uh, in the least, but in terms of military involvement, I think a large proportion of the media think we need to be involved militarily in the Middle East um, to stop terrorism. And I think they've just been using that and this idea of Iran-backed terrorists or Iranian-backed militias to justify that and say, we need to get involved in the Middle East to protect our interests. I think that there's very some media outlets are very wary of criticizing the british government in in general not not just not just on in this mm -hmm. in, on the yemen crisis but in general and i think that's part of it as well they don't want to criticize it and they feel that this is necessary that's for me where it lies in this idea that it's strategically necessary for britain and america to be involved in this crisis okay i'd like to bring leo in now and see what you think uh both of harry's opinion that it's the government and the media's position that we need to get involved militarily and do you i mean do you agree with that leo and do you think that that's what the public feel do you think that i know that you've got some quite interesting opinions on sort of the social media aspects behind this do you think that the, that's what the public want that military involvement or do you think there's more of a humanitarian aspect to what the public are looking for um the conflict started in 2011. I was mm. 10 years old back then. Um, I am 20 years old as of a few days ago. Um, oh my god, happy birthday, I didn't realise. Thank you very much. During the 10 years, a decade uh, of the conflict. Yes, there are a lot of conflicts in the Middle East. Conflict, the Middle East is full of conflicts, actually. 
but not even in the Middle Eastern media, I saw much of a much of an attraction towards uh, Yemeni crisis um, on the on the military, on a military or humanitarian level. On a military or or humanitarian level, not much. Um, I have heard. I I remember some headlines growing up. I am going to loosely translate uh, an ex-Yugoslavian saying: "Every interesting thing takes three days." It's it's popping up and fading away really quickly. And um, Harry here uh, mentioned the Foreign Affairs ma- magazine, which I constantly follow as well. The magazine is published by uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, a U.S.-based think tank, which is very, mm. very influential in U.S. Uh, mm. foreign U- U.S. foreign affairs. Uh, that yes. hence the title "Foreign Affairs" uh, in the first place. And even that organization, they have a conflict global conflict tracker in their website. And the conflict tracker has two methods of sorting the conflicts, ranking them. Um, but the default one is one of them is conflict status. But the default one, when you enter the website, is impact on U.S. interests. The, 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 there are three categories, uh, the, um, and in each category, the assortment is provided uh, again according to U.S. interests. And yeah. there are the, these three categories are critical impact on U.S. interests significant impact on U.S. interests, limited impact on U.S. interests. War in Yemen is the second place in limited impact on U.S. interests. Um, yeah, I mean, I find that really curious anyway, given the its, you know, proximity to the Red Sea and all of the oil trading routes there. But yeah. that's, and, another, yeah. that's another discussion entirely. Carry on. Yeah, and, or go Harry. On. Go on, Harry. And yeah, and I think just to cut in, because I, I want you to continue, but I think that critical to US interests just says it all. I would say even with now with the Biden administration and in Britain, people view and the media view a foreign policy in regards to what is Britain and America's interest. And that's that's what dictates foreign policy. And really anything outside of that isn't the isn't the major concern for them. And when I when I when I try to sort it by conflict status, which I am doing in the meantime the the there are three categories again again assorted worsening conflict status unchanging conflict status not two categories sorry worsening and unchanging and uh yemen crisis has only recently been in the worsening conflict status in the it's in the, pretty hard to get any worse than it already is uh, the mainstream media does not really cover it uh but I remember just before the pandemic, just before the, I think there was oh, a, I think there was an Iranian-American issue by a dead general, something like that, and mm. that was shut up by the start of the pandemic as well. Just before that period of time, I remember seeing some things about Yemen in the media. And most of the mainstream media had a few headlines. Again, every interesting thing uh, takes about three days. Um, it faded away. Um, some of the international org- international organizations, I think it was United Nations as well, uh, spread some sort of awareness through social media. Um, I've seen a lot of reposts about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, but specifically mm-hmm. in terms of dis- displacement, diseases, and hunger, but mainly hunger. Mm-hmm. Um it's it was about humanitarian aid and it 
was meant to spread awareness about the humanitarian crisis, but no post seriously uh, addressed what actually was going on, who was who was involved, what was the conflict yeah. coming from. Uh, none of these. And also, I guess going on from that, going on, uh, go leading on from that, I could you could say. Recently, I guess in the, I don't know, some media outlets I've seen in the last four or five months, I've seen articles saying that we need more humanitarian aid um, to Yemen and uh, to address the crisis, in the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And one article uh, is, is titled, As Yemen Teaches on the Edge, Global Britain Must Surprise Its Role as Responsible World Leader, saying that Britain needs to, saying that Britain needs to, um, increase its aid to Yemen and become that world leader and um, solve this humanitarian crisis. And then in, by increasing the humanitarian aid, it will make peace, but they neglect to mention that, again, um, if you go back to the Garden newspaper article, I think it was titled um, how, Brit how the um, Saudis rely on Britain to fight the, the Yemen war. Then that article in particular that I just read out, the title of it, neglects to mention Britain's Britain providing weaponry and funds so they can fight the war. So uh, as Leo was saying in regards to not really understanding who's involved or who's responsible, even when they cover the media outlets I've seen, even when they cover you know the humanitarian crisis, they don't really address who you know. Britain's role in the crisis. Hmm. And again, even in the Middle Eastern media, I did not see much of it. Um, it seems like conflicts like Syrian conflict um, is being covered in, in the media because it affects hmm. other countries, be, because it affects, um, because Syria had actually caused, the, the conflict in Syria had actually caused a refugee crisis and the Turkish government use that refugee crisis as a negotiation factor with Europe and many countries were actually affected that. The, the only point we come to covering these issues is when someone else is affected other than the people who are actually concerned, who, who are actually affected by the conflict. With with all that in mind, what, what do you think then the impact of that is, Chaps, um, on... I suppose we can start with the impact kind of domestically for the population of Yemen, because it's a pretty dire situation out there, to say the least. Um, who, who, I mean, who wants to come in on that one first? Yeah, I think it's just going to, my basic answer is, it's just going to cause very, a lot of displacement, a lot of famine um, for people. It's going to cause hunger, starvation, it's going to make it a very desperate place to live. Yeah, that's the basic. And then it's going to cause, I guess, the the opposition, uh, the Houthi rebels to get stronger as well, which is is happening anyway. Um, yeah, that's mm -hmm. the basic answer, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And uh, branching out from there, let's go over to Leo. Um, what what do you think the the kind of impact of this lack of media attention and kind of <laughs> lack of engagement on certain issues has caused in terms of like the the region as a whole what do you think the impacts there are 
there has already been uh, four million displaced people by the conflict. Mm. Four million displaced people. These are going to cause, in time, a lot of um, refugee flow, um, and it is going to disrupt the already severe balances of the region. And um, the fact that this is a Shia-related, Sunni-Shia uh, divide-related conflict gives us a lot of clues about how it can affect the relationships between Iran and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. uh, as, as of the religious divide. Harry, would you like to come in, and talk, come in on that? You know, the, the lack of media coverage, again, it will, it will, the lack of media coverage that has come, um, that there has been for the Yemen crisis will make many people in the Middle East and people, many Muslims across the world feel as though the British, the, the West don't care about Muslim suffering. Um, so, and then again, that will create anti-Western sentiment. So, it, you know, it, it's just going to be very negative uh, effect for, for the lack of media coverage has in in the West here in Britain and in America has a very negative effect. Will have a very negative effect in the region um, as a whole, and it will just. I think it will cause and it will have a very negative effect for Britain and America. And the the bits and pieces the media uh, decides to cover. By the way, when I say media, uh, we kind of. Uh, um, anthropomorphize media as a, as a single entity. Media is a, a yeah. lot of entities combined together. But whatever the um, the the variety of entities combined together decides to put on news, decides to place on whatever the public sees, they are the, the, each of the uh, bit of information you actually decide to put on is actually a moral decision. Mm. Um, because, um, as, as we, as we said before, um, not, most of the, most of the, uh, social media coverage was not about what had, what actually the conflict was about, but more like the consequences of the conflict. But who does that is a lot of question. Who caused the consequences of the conflict? Who mm. were supported by this? Um, mm. Uh, th- there is a lot of British involvement in the in the British Royal um, Air Force's involvement in the yeah. in the in the conflict as well, um, giving Saudis a lot of uh, support and not checking upon uh, the moral consequences of Saudis' actions, like civilian deaths. There actually are some. Uh, accounts of um, British-supported Saudi military um, bombing uh, a wedding, bombing uh, an event related to death of someone, and there were like a few hundred mourners who were actually who were actually in the area, and they were bombed as well, um, etc. The lack of media coverage uh, on these actually result in the worsening of the conflict mm. because um, 
it no leads... one's held accountable are they if the world media aren't saying anything yes yeah okay with all that in mind uh, we've been so far on the episode uh we've been sort of critiquing the british trying to get involved trying to set themselves in and go and fix things for everyone but given that it appears to be us and the west in general i'd say that appear to have got a lot of people into this mess Mm. whose responsibility do you think it is to to get us out of this mess do you think that it requires more british involvement militarily uh, humanitarian do you think it's the un do they need to do more do they need to send in the peacekeepers what what whose responsibility is it international community nations that have done this you themselves know, harry yeah, know, go ahead. i think you know firstly I think there needs to be UN UN led peace mission in in Yemen. And I think people need to understand the Houthi rebels are linked to Iran. That is fairly certain. I think in order to get this disrespectful towards I don't know if it seems to be disrespectful or disregarding Houthi rebels, but in order to get peace truly in Yemen, you need to get Iran on side. So I think you need to negotiate with Iran, um, which is problematic for many reasons, primarily because not many countries have diplomatic relations with Iran. Um, you know, I think Britain, Britain and America need to fund humanitarian aid in Yemen. Um, mm -hmm. Britain and America, you know, America have just announced, I think President Biden's administration, um a few days a few weeks ago i believe it was um announced that they were going to curtail support for offensive saudi operations in the region um and they were going to stop out, um uh, if you like character characterizing the houthi rebels as terrorists which is a huge start because you can't you can't really negotiate with anyone if you call them a terrorist um so i think you know Britain, it's a really good point i never thought about that yeah so because you know firstly if you call someone a terrorist how likely are they going to how likely are they to negotiate with you that's first of all second of all if america's america and britain's standing policies they will never negotiate with terrorists so if you characterize them as terrorists how are you ever going to get a peace process because you're not unwilling to negotiate with them um so you, you know, and I think the next, the big thing is the British government need to be held accountable for, as as I've alluded to and Leo has alluded to, the British government have, and the RAF and other aspects and other, you know, areas of the British government have helped fund the Saudi Arabian, you know, uh, war, if you like, in the region. Britain needs to, rec needs to stop that, stop its secret funding, and get to the peace negotiations. That's the way it can be solved. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have to understand that they have legitimate concerns, the legitimate reasons. They're not just doing it. You know, they have legitimate grievances. Is the best way I can think of putting it. And you need to address those in order to have peace. Um, you can't just have a war and. That will not solve anything, you know. You can't just con constantly fight. That's not really going to solve much. 
So, yeah, I think there needs to be a peace process. I think the UN needs to get involved. Britain mm -hmm. and America need to stop getting involved militarily. And they need to, there just needs to be a peace process and the UN need to take charge immediately. Yeah, I don't usually um, inflict my opinions on you all. Um, but, <laughs> but this is something that I sort of, I feel quite passionately about and I've done an embarrassing amount of research into. Um, and... I can go really, really nerdy now, if you like. But basically, um, from what I've gathered from the UN website, there's four kinds of peacekeeping operation that mm -hmm. UN peacekeepers um, can sort of employ. Mm -hmm. And um, I think all four of them need to be engaged. Um, uh, there's So your, your first um, operation is an interpositional mission, which is literally sending in the blue helmets, protecting civilians, mm -hmm not kind of you know obviously engaging you're basically engaging with whoever's actually causing harm or potentially threatening the lives of civilians um your second one is a multi-dimensional mission um which is kind of resource provision emergency camps humanitarian missions mm -hmm. water food shelter that sort of thing needs to be needs to go in pretty quickly um there needs to be a humanitarian corridor established it's it's gone on long enough now the world media knows about this world governments know about this if in this age of you know the pandemic and we have to take this as an opportunity to cooperate establish humanitarian corridor sort it out third mission is a peace enforcement one yeah. uh, which doesn't require any of the parties to consent to it um under chapter seven of the un charter if you're interested <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is um, basically not mandating violence any further than self-defence. Yeah. Brokering peace deal, which is then observed by the fourth kind of mission, uh, which is an observation one, uh, which is obviously overseen by the UN. And mm. then that multidimensional mission, I think, basically needs to be extended into provision of like international monetary support, re-establishment mm. of the education system of fair and open politics a judiciary health systems institutions like that mm. um and eventually yeah rehoming and rehabilitation yeah. of civilians kind of comes all under that but yeah. that was my little rant there that's what yeah. i think um everyone's popping off now uh leo do you want to go first having uh lived in coming from and observed uh, having observed the politics and the history of uh, Middle East and Southeastern Europe. Um, my, my observation is that the more Western um, involvement, the more blood is spilled. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's why you, you, you have been, Vienna and Harry has been uh, talking, discussing about UN involvement. That mm. is actually what should happen. The UN should be handling the situation. However, the involvement so far has been some somewhat open, somewhat somewhat covert involvement of the United Kingdom uh, engaging in supporting the Saudi government, uh, mm. which which is becoming a lot more problematic than it sounds. Um, as as of twenty as of the end of twenty nineteen, a company called BAE Systems 
which is by the Guardian told, told by the Guardian mentioned to be the Britain's biggest arms company, uh, has been supporting the Saudi government in in uh, military operations. In fact, um, John Deverell, De uh, a former Ministry of Defense Mandarin and Defense Attaché. Um, says they could not do it without us yeah. and i am i am reading the uh, statistics and data most of the bombs provided by the uk are actually uh, produced in in the uk mm -hmm. um and uh, they are produced in scotland and southeast england we got going back to what Rhiannon was saying about humanitarian corridor. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I would say that you need a no-fly zone. You need a no-fly zone over the entire country, over at least over the humanitarian corridor, but if not over the entire country, no-fly zone. That's what I would say. And because that would solve a lot of issues. That would solve the issue of rebels worrying about British planes and Saudi planes that bomb, and that would worry about, you know, Iranian planes bombing, etc., etc. It would solve a lot of issues. Then I'd say there needs to be a ceasefire. It needs to be a ceasefire. You can't have a peace process without a ceasefire. So that's also what needs to happen. And the final thing I would like to say about that is there needs to be, in my opinion, a power sharing government because you know you need to share the power between Houthi rebels and the current government to resolve the issue because their main grievance is the fact that President Salah, is that how you pronounce his name, um, was yeah. was forced to resign or was, it was no, he's no longer president. So solve that by having a power sharing government. You know, we, that's how you solve it, in my opinion. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the issue with both of those things is that it involves every side surrendering some part of their sovereignty. It involves Britain... Mm. surrendering control, not control, but influence that they may have over airspace. It involves mm. the people who currently call themselves president surrendering some of their sovereignty to what they basically believe are terrorists. It involves terrorists, well, people who are called terrorists, yeah. entering into an establishment that actually they want to see entirely overthrown. It, yeah. It's all very well and good. I was sat here in Sheffield saying, oh, mm. everyone just needs to get on with each other, be friends. But, yeah. <laughs> but how but, likely it is. is uh... Yeah, and to go back to the point that I think Leo and I have made so many times during this podcast, it's frustrating because Britain and America both feel it is in their vital interest to, to, get, to stay involved in this conflict. Um, the moral... You know, the moral quandary is regarding UN peacekeepers. Again, I, I don't know whether we've ever considered regarding UN peacekeepers, and I do agree that UN peacekeepers need to be involved heavily. The, the US and Britain are obviously part of the UN. So then you would have to say, if you're going to send UN peacekeepers then, are you going to, are you going to exclude, should we exclude British and Americans from the, that peacekeeping force in case because of perceived, perhaps the perceived bias that those peacekeepers will have um, because of 
Britain and America's role in, in the conflict. They, they may be perceived to have some bias. Um, so that's, I do, obviously, I do agree peacekeeping force needs to be uh, deployed, but a bit of a question mark over whether Britain or American peacekeepers should be, should be deployed. Mm. I think that we can uh, leave that question mark to those that are listening. So thank you so much to uh, to Leo and Harry for coming and imparting your views on us. Uh, it's been really, really interesting discussion, actually, and something that I feel really passionately about. So uh, apologies again for my little rant there. But um, I hope that you've enjoyed listening and I hope you've enjoyed being part of it, chaps. And we shall see you yeah. on the next one. Bye.